0: We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Melanie Carrington and Alison Fisher. Lots of different grassroots organizing across North America in recent years has brought unprecedented mainstream visibility to what impacted communities have always known, that black and indigenous people are disproportionately targeted for surveillance, harassment, arrest, and violence by the criminal justice system. What has so far received less mainstream attention is the ways in which white supremacy, anti-blackness, and settler colonialism shape our school system as well. Everything from the content of curriculum to systems for disciplining students to dominant teaching practices to distribution of resources and much more result in a system that tends to marginalize black and indigenous youth and other youth of color and disproportionately push them out of schools. There has generally been a lot more attention in the United States than in Canada to the ways that these two systems not only have harmful impacts on the same groups of youth, but in fact sometimes work together in doing so. Communities have called this process by which racialized youth are pushed out of schools and forced into systems of incarceration and punishment the school-to-prison pipeline. In Toronto, just as in communities across the continent, Organizing in impacted communities around these issues has been happening for a long time. Specific groups and initiatives come and go, of course, and one of the newer groups to take up the struggle is called Education Not Incarceration, or ENI. The group formed after an initial callout brought a diverse group of community organizers, professionals, students, and other people together in November of 2016. After a careful process of determining their priorities and approach, the group decided that their initial focus would be what is called the School Resource Officer, or SRO, program. The SRO program started in the late 2000s after an instance of high-profile violence in a Toronto school. At that moment, the school system in the city had still not recovered from the funding cuts imposed by a conservative provincial government in the late 1990s and early 2000s. As well, there was already, at least among more affluent residents of the city, an air of moral panic about crime, which had resulted in an increase in targeted policing of poor and racialized neighborhoods. So when the Toronto police offered to place armed, uniformed officers in schools in those same neighborhoods, and to not make the city's two school systems pay for this, the Toronto District School Board and the Toronto Catholic District School Board jumped at the opportunity. There was never any consultation with the targeted communities about this measure, however. And since it was enacted, it has been experienced in much the same way as policing is experienced in the rest of society. That is, it has exposed black and indigenous students to harassment, surveillance, and criminalization, and it has made many of them feel less safe in their schools. The campaign against it, waged by ENI and by a range of other groups and individuals in the community over the course of 2017, was ultimately successful. Late last year, the Toronto District School Board voted to end the SRO program in Toronto's public schools. While the program continues to exist in the city's Catholic school system, and both the public and Catholic systems are still a long way from truly embodying the kind of commitment to social justice, anti-racism, and liberation that many organizers dream of, this still constitutes a major victory for communities, particularly black and other racialized communities in the city. Melanie Carrington is a social worker and the mother of a black son who is currently in elementary school in Toronto. Allison Fisher is a teacher in the Toronto District School Board. Both of them are also graduate students, as well as members of Education Not Incarceration. They speak with me about the racialized impacts of policing and the school-to-prison pipeline, about the SRO program, and about the successful campaign waged by ENI and other groups to get armed, uniformed police officers out of Toronto's public schools.
1: My name's Melanie. I am the mom of a son who is in elementary school. I am a social worker by trade, and I have also done some Ph.D. work in social work.
2: And my name is Allison Fisher, and I'm a teacher with the Toronto District School Board. I've been teaching for over 10 years, and I'm also doing a doctorate at York University in the Faculty of Education, and I'm a member of Education on Prestation. E&I is a collective of folks who are interested in challenging issues around the school-to-prison pipeline and the criminalization of youth.
1: When we speak about the school-to-prison pipeline, we're referring to certain aspects within the education system that lend themselves to either push out, so students feeling the necessity of leaving their education, or things that directly impact them so as to pull them into the criminal justice system and out of the education system. Those are the areas that we wish to directly address.
2: The School Resource Officer program came into being around 2008, 2009. There was a shooting of a young 15-year-old boy named Jordan Manners at C.W. Jeffries. and There was a lot of media and public response to that shooting. The young boy had died inside of the school. It was the first time a young person had died inside a Toronto school. So the police offered their services to the Toronto District School Board, offered officers up to be placed in various schools. And at the time, they accepted, the board officials accepted, but it was never actually taken to communities to consult with communities at all. It was just a decision between the police and the board. It was funded by the police themselves. The way in which it got started was really problematic. And then it just continued on from there the time that the SRO program was brought in, it had been a difficult time for the Toronto District School Board financially. The Harris government had changed the funding formula, which impacted certain school boards in particular ways. And Toronto was one of those large urban school boards that was really hit hard by funding cuts. So there was already a context of lack of funding, which meant educators and counselors and professionals working in schools, positions were being cut and so on. So that was the context in the promise um, of school work at the time of Jordan Manor's death. The other issue that was going on at the time was in 2005, there was a lot of outcry around Jean Prieba's death. And there was a the whole year of the gun happening at the same time. So there's a lot of conversation when the police jumped on this kind of moral panic that was very racialized. A lot of white communities had a particular response and the mainstream media, had this kind of response, this kind of panic. So Tavis was created, which was a particular kind of police force. I think it was supposed to be community-based policing, but it was a highly militarized and problematic policing group that was created in 2006 and really exacerbated a lot of the carding issues that were going on already amongst racialized communities. So again, Tavis was a police force that was put in particular communities that were again these kind of quote unquote priority communities. So there was an over of black and indigenous and other racialized groups in these particular communities leading up to Jordan Manor's death. And then this was just another impetus, this, this event allowed the police to encroach even more in these particular communities by offering school resource officer programs.
0: And earlier, you mentioned carding as part of the context for how Black and other racialized youth experience policing. Talk briefly about what carding is.
1: At its most basic, carding is when a police officer comes up to someone and asks them for their information and records that information. The groups that are primarily targeted by carding are people of color, including Black people. And this information ends up being used in nefarious ways. So that's certainly a concern, the fact that police can just come up to you, ask for your information, register your information without any sort of reasoning behind it.
0: How did education not incarceration first come together?
1: There was
2: someone who had done her master's on the school resource officer program who was interested in bringing a number of folks together who've been working on these issues for a long time, interested in seeing what we could do together collectively. So there was a call out, a number of people responded in November of 2016. And then over time, we did a lot of kind of intentional focusing on how we wanted to work together, what our group would look like, And we started to kind of focus in on the school resource officer program as one element that we'd like to try to challenge directly. So there was a lot of thinking through of our strategy about that, how we wanted to go about doing that. And through a whole series of intentional actions, I guess, we decided to focus on the Toronto Police Services Board meetings and the Toronto District School Board kind of gave intentional energy towards those two bodies as the direct bodies that supported the school resource officer program.
0: And who responded to that initial call-out?
2: It was pretty varied. There was a number of folks in education, a lot of concerned teachers, social workers, a number of community activists in the Latinx community, folks who've been working on this in the James Lynch community and other priority neighborhoods, lawyers, lots of community activists and graduate students that have been working in these areas for a long time. So it was quite a broad swath of folk as things kind of moved forward. We got some media response in May to a Toronto Star article after the Toronto Police Services Board meeting where a number of us had given some deputations. Then we had a number of other people join. So it's kind of grown from there.
0: So those conversations about figuring out how to work together and coming up with a strategy, what were they like?
2: In any social justice group, when you come together, you're constantly thinking through how to work on a variety of levels. So, of course, there's the political level and how you're going to lobby and campaign and the particular institutions that you're interested in. So Toronto Police Services Board is a very different entity, for example, than the Toronto District School Board. Because there were a number of folks employed in the education sector, some of us had some familiarity with how the Toronto District School Board worked and who would be people we would need to contact there. The Toronto Police Services Board, you know, we had to do a little bit of more research on how to move forward in that respect. But just conversations about political movement, but also educational awareness, you know, a lot of people perhaps need more information about the intersections between the criminal justice system and the education system. So we also talked a lot about how we could further educate the public, It also meant how are we going to work with the media? We did some media training at one point to try to get a better sense of how we could use the media in particular ways to help us and to avoid misinformation, to get our message out. So those kinds of conversations were pretty important to make sure that we all felt comfortable moving forward all on the same page. As a group, we value democratic process and trying to figure out things collectively. So just making sure that we were all politically on the same page, we felt comfortable with how we were going to move forward and then, you know, how we were going to use media and how we were going to create greater public awareness about the issue as well.
0: So walk me through the sequence of how the campaign unfolded last year.
2: We found out that there was going to be some conversation about the school resource officer program in May at the Toronto Police Services Board meeting. The public can give deputations at these meetings. So we decided to sign up a number of us to depute the school resource officer program and to state why this program was hurting young people, was placing them at risk. One of the issues that Gita Madden's research has demonstrated, she's the person who did her master's at Boise on the school resource officer program, was the problematics of having an armed uniformed police officer in particular schools where they're mostly racialized young people. Also, these school resource officers were known to sit on intelligence gathering units within the police force. The access that police would have to information about young people was quite extraordinary and the possibility of that information from the school being shared with police was really concerning. So there are these kinds of issues that we wanted to address with the Toronto Police Services Board. So a number of us deputed at that board meeting. Because of some of our deputations, a number of members of the Toronto Food Services Board indicated that they were quite concerned with what they were hearing that day, and the board came very close to suspending the SRO program. Mayor John Tory put forward a motion to delay a decision until the June Toronto Food Services Board meeting, and then there was a June meeting. A number of people showed up to that because the issue had gotten a lot of media attention in May. Mayor John Tory was working to ensure that there would be a number of people coming to the June meeting that would support the School Resource Officer Program. There was a number of Catholic students and staff that were bused in by the Toronto Catholic Board to depute about why certain folks there felt that the School Resource Officer Program was important. And then there was a whole number of community activists who came in opposition to the School Resource Officer Program, many of whom could not even get access to the meeting. It was one of the first times in a while that the Toronto Police Services Board had shut off access and there's police officers monitoring people coming to be a public meeting. And a lot of questions raised about why the Catholic Board was sending its students in the middle of a student exam period and final projects, busing folks into this meeting. It became very clear that there were certain political pressures happening behind the scenes to support this program. What came out of that June meeting with the Toronto Food Services Board was they decided to do a study on the school resource officer program. And so about a week later, the Toronto District School Board had a meeting where a trustee put forward a motion to also do a review of the school resource officer program. So we started to have conversations with the Toronto District School Board about what that review would look like and what should happen there. And so we did some lobbying with the TDSB. In August, the trustees met again where the review issue was going to be on the agenda. So we spoke to a number of trustees about some of the concerns with a review happening in schools where there were presently SROs and what that might look like. Could you actually do a review on the school resource officer program while the officers were actually patrolling the building at the same time and so on? A number of trustees put forward a motion at the end of August to suspend the SRO program until the review was complete. So that was a significant win for us to see that program suspended so that young folks would not have to experience having a police officer in their schools.
1: Once the suspension was in place, alongside that request of the trustees was request from community with respect to how the project would take place with the surveying of students and staff. It was really important to E&I and other groups that the Toronto District School Board employ an equity lens in the way in which they were gathering this information. The basic idea behind using an equity lens is centering the voices of marginalized students. A stark example of the differences is clear to us right now by way of the way in which the TDSB did their research and centred the voices of marginalized students compared to the way in which the Carleton research team used more of a a surveying method. Carleton outcomes were that the majority of students didn't mind having police officers around. So it was really important that the TDSB took this stand and used this frame in order to get this information, because that is the whole concern with the SRO program, that it's having a negative impact on a certain segment of students while on its other side running various positive programs with other types of students. So really it just replicated what marginalized youth were experiencing in their communities. Collectively ENI and various community groups did a lot of public information campaigning to ensure that people were aware of the negative effects of having police in school, similar to what we had been doing throughout. Just a little bit more targeted by adding requests that the public contact their trustees Mm -hmm. and have their people contact trustees in order to express their concern. One of the things
2: that the Toronto District School Board did, in addition to doing a survey, was also community consultations. They had a number of community consultations throughout the city, and we made sure that we were present at those to uh, also participate and to see how those spaces were organized and who was attending and so on. Those community consultations were really key in providing voice for a number of community folk who had never been supportive of the School Resource Office Programme but had never been actually consulted by the TDSC those spaces were important spaces to hear folks express their perspectives. One of the issues that began to demonstrate itself was that a lot of trustees were not fully aware of the School Resource Officer program, weren't fully aware of all the implications of the SRO program and what that meant in particular communities. And so we had an educative role to play in informing trustees of what that meant to a lot of the students in their schools and how that made school not necessarily a very comfortable place, particularly since so many were just having problems being stopped by police continually on their way to and from school and on the weekends, and then having to enter a school building with an armed uniformed police officer inside the school. So the review happened. They employed an equity lens, and after surveying 15,000 Students, about 4,000 students, indicated that they felt watched, surveilled, criminalized, harassed with the SRO program. And because they employed an equity lens, the TDSB determined that this was an unacceptable level of lack of safety that so many kids were experiencing. And the community consultations were primarily voices indicating that they wanted to see the program end. So that made it such that the TDSB staff recommendation to trustees was to abolish the program. And thankfully, the majority of trustees, I believe it was 20 out of 23 or something like that, voted in favor of ending the school resource officer program. It was a really beautiful moment.
0: So one feature of how these debates related to policing have been playing out in North America is a steadfast refusal by a substantial group of people, meaning particularly a substantial group of white people, to understand how police are a source of danger and harassment, particularly for black and indigenous people. How did you incorporate challenging that refusal into the work that you did in the campaign?
1: Politically, our group comes from a position that the only way to go about dealing with these types of situations is to believe the voices of racialized people. That's where we start because that's, we believe, the right way to act on this issue
2: And a lot of members of our group have done research as well. So in addition to starting with the position that you need to listen to voices of folks who've been most impacted by policing, the amount of research that's been done on these issues also just confirms these populations' experience. So adding that to the conversation... You know, there's been some really interesting conversations around policing and carding in Toronto for a number of years now, partially because of the Toronto Star's Freedom of information Requests and some of the information that they've released to the public. But activists within the Black community, within Indigenous communities, have been saying for so long and identifying this as a historical issue in this country. I think just... Adding to those voices that have historically been fighting on this issue for so many years, Black Lives Matter as well has put this front and center on the radar and have done so much work and building on the research that's been done for so many years on these issues that demonstrates that the criminal justice system holds a disproportionate number of racialized indigenous folk within its grasp. So in Toronto, I feel like these conversations have been circulating for so long. Conversations are happening in this country that are necessary, that are needed, and that hopefully white populations are having to have some more difficult conversations about
0: What other kinds of changes, meaning policy changes or whatever, beyond ending the SRO program, need to happen in order to substantially address the school-to-prison pipeline?
2: The school system was historically built to be a settler colonial project to support nation building. So the school system itself has always been structured in such a way to support privilege in many instances, to support class privilege, to support whiteness and what it meant to be quote unquote Canadian in a particular way. So there are so many different problematic elements to how our education system operates, you know, with a fairly Eurocentric curriculum still. the School system has always been rather disciplinary in nature. So there are always going to be a limit to policies because the structure of education itself, similar to of the criminal justice system, is just operating in such a way that it tends to be exclusionary. So I think it needs to be both a challenge of the education system as it's currently operating, and then if we can make, in the meantime, until we see a different sort of approach to education in this country, we try to fight from within. Um, so we try to find ways to open up and challenge certain policies that are most obviously supporting oppressive relations. So reimagining a school system beyond our current system is important to us. Freedom and learning and community and collective care and all these great things but also trying to think about what is the relation between education and the criminal justice system. We have something called a police school board protocol, for example, that lays out the groundwork between how the education system and the criminal justice system through the police operate with one another. That would be one
1: policy, for example, that really demands some uh, attention. In doing this activism work alongside these great folks, I've really come to see how similar the people output in education is to social work, both professions built on helping. And with that comes a wonderful set of blinders to all of the harm that you've actually created. In social work, one of our legacies that is often forgotten is the 60s scoop in which Indigenous children were dragged from their homes and replaced in white families throughout North America. So these helping professions and the people who come into them, I worry because I see The blinders that are part and parcel with this work in that people can say, well, my intention is to help. So if I see a racialized child doing something wrong, it's not about their color. It's about the fact that they're just not doing well. They're not meeting standards. And I really hope for a time when more social workers, more teachers are challenging themselves with respect to the inherent biases that you bring into this work. The systemic discriminations that are built into the systems that you're working for and how that is intended to put racialized children and youth into a certain segment, which is deemed in need of fixing and how that directly links itself to the school to prison pipeline. I think the last couple of years have made very urgent call-outs to white people to gather themselves and the people around them because I believe that the majority of change with respect to the racism and discrimination that people of colour are experiencing in Canada, a lot of the responsibility for change rests in whiteness. So it's continued challenges to oneself in order to recognize how you are aiding in racism and racist acts.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Melanie Carrington and Alison Fisher of the Toronto group Education Not Incarceration. To learn more about their work, search for Education Not Incarceration on Facebook. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen